A quick note on this episode, during the episode I mentioned that I wanted to splice in Justin Spruill's public comment from the 12th because that's what motivated me to reach out to him and interview him in this show. That's at the end of the episode, so I suggest you listen for the whole thing, and I'm probably going to start doing that as a sort of tradition for the people who come on the show who have made comments before the WDFW commission. Secondary note, I've been calling it the special commission for several years now. It's actually the WDFW commission. There is no special. Apparently they aren't special. Bear with me. I'm going to try to correct my language on that. But again, I've been talking about them in one way for about two years now without having been corrected. Hi, welcome to the Hunter Farmer Artisan Podcast. My name is Ryan Garrett. I will be your host. Today, I have a very special guest. His name is Justin Spruill. I heard him speak at the special commission meeting this past weekend, and he struck me as incredibly articulate with a specifically different message and action. So I immediately reached out to him and had a conversation about what he's doing, which I'll let him talk a little bit about. But Justin, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Ryan. Thanks for coming on. I was struck very much not only by the articulate nature of your speech, which I'm probably actually going to splice into the end of this episode, because I think anybody who missed that should definitely hear it. But not only the articulate nature of what you said, but the perspective from where you said it. And a huge portion of that is that you are a veteran. Thank you for that. And you are trying to help other veterans get involved through the Backcountry Hunters and Anglers Armed Forces Initiative, if I got that right. Yes, you got that right. Yeah, the the Armed Forces Initiative of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. And really what that is, that's the military wing of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. You know, of course, it's a big organization. A lot of people know it uh, in this space. And yeah, I mean, for me, you know, I can give just a little background. Uh, I tell everybody that I started my adult career when I joined the Army back in 2011. Uh, I'm originally from Texas, uh, spent 23 years there, didn't know a whole lot more than that, and uh, left for the military, military police, got sent over to to Germany, and really like getting involved in the outdoors. That's where it started for me. I was on patrol one night and got a call to an off post, what we called uh, suicidal ideations. And so basically somebody had, you know, was having a, was having a crisis. Uh, I showed up and it happened to be somebody I knew, talked them down, got them the help they needed. And from there, that person was a civilian, started working on themselves and used the outdoors to heal themselves. They were, they started hunting, they started going through and doing fly fishing. And that got me involved and stopped I was going to the bars every night. I was doing the the single soldier thing like everybody does. Uh, you know, you'll in, in this community, that's kind of what you do when you go overseas. And I started going out fishing. And so it became harder. I couldn't go out to do those things. I had to be, you know, I'm on the river at 6 a.m. Uh, opening up river systems for Americans to use for invasive species removal. We removed rainbow nice. trout on some of them. They had a big issue with crawfish being accidentally introduced, the signal crawfish from here in the Pacific Northwest. They introduced them into a German system. And so I was teaching people how to make crawfish traps. They had exploded. uh, And I was showing them this is how you make a crawfish trap and using the Americans over there as a way to help regenerate their system, be able to use our military in a way 
that helped out the environment. So that's really what kind of spurred me towards that. And I got here to Washington. I had never really experienced public lands. Texas is 98% privately owned. And so really what got me is I started doing a little bit of fishing. I started trying to take people out and got into a little bit of pheasant hunting and just finding all the opportunities. And I was going on a vacation into Colorado you know, young soldier, brand new family. My kid was uh, six months old at the time and we were trying to save money. And somebody told me, well, why don't you just do just, you know, camping on public land? And I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and so I had to look up dispersed camping and I was like, wait, so I can just stop in on BLM land and just pitch a tent. Isn't that cool? It's that's so like amazing. one of the most empowering things about America. Once you learn that that's something you can do because you're so conditioned to think that it's it's almost like monopoly has gotten into all of our brains in that you can't stop anywhere without paying someone and technically you're paying for public land too through your taxes but yeah the fact that you can just stop somewhere and pitch a tent and be like well this is where i'm going to stay for the night is absolutely yeah that was it never never occurred to me and, and i think everybody here in washington is is blessed you know for those who have grown up here you know when I tell people that I didn't know about this, that there's so many others that don't know about this, it just kind of floors everybody. But we were outside of Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and we were told about this little mountain that was some national forest land. And we're going up the mountain and we're trying to find a spot to camp. And these frat dudes come down in their Jeep and like, you guys camping? I'm like, yeah. I'm like, all right, go up two more spots, turn in. We've got the perfect spot. And we sit there, we pull into their spot, we set up our tent and I'm sitting as the sun's going down outside of the tent, watching the sun go down over the Tetons, just above the tree lines, nothing in our way, holding my my six-month-old son. And that's when it just kind of clicked for me. I was like, this is all I ever want. This is what I want for my children. This is something that needs to be protected. And that's how I got involved with BHA, because I wanted a way to make sure that people knew about public lands and knew that these places were going to be protected. And so that's kind of my story to get involved with it and with the Armed Forces Initiative, you know, I got involved with Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, just kind of the same things as everybody else, clicking on the little form letters and filling out a form letter and feeling like I'm doing it. And, you know, maybe it'd show up to a, to a, it's a pint night or something like that every now and then. And well, in 2018, they did a membership survey that asked if our members were part of the military community, first time I'd ever been asked in backcountry hunters and anglers. And it turned out that 12% of those people who came back were part of the military community. The national yeah, so average double, is something, yeah, double yeah, the, the national, national average. average is around 6%. So on accident, somehow here's this hunting, fishing, you know, public lands organization that has doubled the national average on accident of people who hunt and fish. And the more we looked at it, the more we found that those people were holding leadership positions. Those veterans were organizing trips. They were organizing cleanups. They were really the ones who were doing the work and giving back. Uh, as a matter of fact, even BHA itself was founded by a Marine. It's so ingrained within the military culture to be in the outdoors and to seek that out. And so that was just kind of, it was an accident. In 2020, they took out 18 veterans into the Montana mule deer hunt. And then now where we last year in 2022, we took out 1700 veterans across the nation. This year, we're looking to take out 23. We've got liaisons in 46 states. I've got members in all 50 states. I've got members overseas who are trying to start clubs in Italy and Germany. I've got members in Korea. 
four Canadian provinces where we have clubs. And really the idea is we want to connect our veterans together, get them into the outdoors, help reduce the learning curve as people move around, and then be able to, once you're out of the military and you're that veteran and you've settled in, teach you how to get involved in conservation, uh, get you involved in hands-on conservation, and get you speaking out and using your voice as a veteran for our public lands, for our public waters, and for our hunting and fishing rights and traditions. Yeah, you know, One thing that really I always tell everybody, our veterans, every single person who's a veteran there has raised their right hand and has sworn to defend the Constitution of the United States. And whether they know it or not, that means they decided to defend public lands. Public lands is in article, is in the uh, property clause. So unknowingly, every single veteran has sworn to defend public lands. Nice. So whether they know it or not, they have. And so this land belongs to all of us. They've sworn to defend it. They've earned it. So just teaching them how to get out and use it. Yeah. And I think that when you're organizing veterans to speak at these events, it carries a little bit of weight. I mean, I can say that, hey, I'm a hunter, I'm a farmer, and this is what I think should happen with deer. And regardless of how articulate I am, it's a little bit different when somebody says, hey, I've served in active duty military, I've defended your right to even have these things. And when you take away these hunting opportunities, it affects me in ways A, B, and C, and it affects the citizens that I swore to protect in ways A, B, and C. I think that has a, a little bit more gravitas at the end of the day. So I do want to talk about that, how you're organizing not only to get people outdoors, specifically veterans, but how you're organizing them to get involved in this whole political process, because that is so important. Yeah, absolutely. And so, I mean, we kind of do it as like a, a pillar, you know, we understand, you know, in the R3 aspect, the more people we have that are out there hunting and fishing, the more voices that we can have. So that is part of it. I want to get them out. I want to make sure that, you know, we have so many people that stopped hunting, stopped fishing for their entire time. Uh, when I joined the military, I knew I was heading overseas. I sold all my guns uh, yeah. just immediately. And boom, cool. I'm going to be in the barracks. I know I'm not going to be able to use them. We've got a lot of people who would hunt and fish maybe when they went back home. So we know first we need to get them involved, give them a reason to buy a hunting and fishing license. And then when they're there at our camps, we teach them about conservation. We have a biologist there. We talk about public lands and we talk about legislation and policy and how they can be involved. So the next step is after we have them buying a license and identifying themselves as a hunter or a fisher, the next part is I need them to be involved, hopefully in hands-on conservation. I've given them a spot and a reason to care. Now I want them to give back to that public land. So I want them to give back to that spot, whatever it is. And then ultimately that's kind of the last goal is building those leaders in conservation and building those leaders in policy. We, we kind of say that's our last step because, you know, you kind of need those other ones. It, it takes yeah, it's a, a little bit. It's a build building block. That. It's that whole first, here's something that you can fall in love with. That's hunting public lands, nature in general. Here's what's happening with it. And here's how you can have a voice in the direction of that to, you know, preserve these things that you love. It's its that ever-expanding circle of focus that I'm focused on me. I just want to go out. I want to get a bear, a deer, an elk, whatever. Oh, man, I really love this place that I've gone to, and it's cool that it's here. Oh, wait, there's legislation out here that says that all these private landowners can buy everything around it and deny you and everybody else access to it. 
oh, here's how I can get involved in that process to make sure that I protect this for not just myself, but for others. And then later on, it's that whole, I don't want to just defend this piece of land. I want to defend this other person's piece of land that has the same problem or this other person's right to go hunt and trap here because I know how much it would affect me if I lost it. And I'm sure that person feels the same way. Yeah, and that's a big part for our military community. Everybody, especially as you transition out, we're used to, we joined because we wanted to be part of something bigger. There was that need. And then while you're in, you know that every day you're out there making a difference. You know, you're, you feel that you're there. Something that you're doing affects somebody's life. Uh, you know, if you're rigging parachute, that affects somebody's life. Um, yes. Whether, you know, whatever you're doing, every action that you do while you're in the military is part of a bigger machine and you can feel that you're making a difference. And then when you get out and you transition, a lot of us struggle to find that something bigger than ourselves. Hmm. That's um, really interesting get... because one of the things I struggle with on my end trying to get people involved is that when I tell people to to write in, to talk, to tell their friends about it, whatever whatever action they take, one of the things that I'm constantly fighting against is this feeling that what they do is inconsequential. And it's kind of interesting that as service members, you guys have the inverse of that in that everything you do is consequential, even these little minor details. Like, I don't know how to rig up a parachute, but I'm sure there's some clip or something that needs to be a specific way. And it might seem like an inconsequential detail, but it's huge to the person using the parachute. Yeah, it goes all the way back, even basic training. Like yeah. You go and you fill up your cups. You hold your cups a specific way in basic training. And the reason you're holding them that way is that's how you're going to hold grenades. <laughs> Every single little detail matters for some reason. Exactly. Every, you know, again, from the way, you know, all the way, you, your first day is joining, the first time you go and get to have a meal, you're having that meal in a way that's going to affect your safety, everybody else's safety. So yeah, every single aspect of it, you know, whether you you recognize it or not, is it's done for a reason. It's part of something bigger. So yeah, it's just one thing that we struggle with. And that's, I think, why we've gained so much success here is just being able to give our veterans that outlet to get involved and find yeah. that thing that's bigger and that passion. Yeah. And that's, that that does put you in a unique place because it's that that need to, again, feel like your actions have consequence. And I know, I know that when you write in, when you call in, when you talk to other people, when you get people engaged, it has a consequence. And, you know, a lot of us, it's hard for people to think in terms of the long game, in that, you know, people go, well, we lost this, we lost this, we lost this, what's a person to do, but it's that whole, yeah, but as we continue to press forward, as we continue to work this out, we're laying the groundwork of these are the things we've discussed and this is what happened. These are the things we discussed and this is what happened. And at some point when the system, you know, maybe if this goes too far one direction, things get broken, we can point back and say, yeah, we told you about this. Here's how we fix it. Maybe you can listen now. So those things do have consequence. And I do want to talk a little bit about why it's so important, especially for vets specifically for hunting. I know why it matters to me, but for vets specifically, I'll, I'll share a story. Last year, I took a vet out bear hunting and 
he mentioned to me, we didn't ultimately get a bear because he couldn't see very well. I think we actually had a bear within about like 10 yards of him. And because of his service, his peripheral vision is a little messed up and he just never caught it. I think it just slipped by him. But he enjoyed himself a lot. And he mentioned to me that he just wanted to have a positive experience with a rifle in his hand. And that really struck home for me that going out and being a part of the outdoors can be a very healing experience. I know personally, for some issues I've dealt with, it has been, and it sounds like it has been for you. Why do you think that is so helpful? You know, I, I don't have a I don't have a degree in psychology. There's been a lot of there's been a lot of studies behind outdoor adjunct therapy. That's what we call it. And it's just therapy using the outdoors that doesn't necessarily have a counselor involved. And so I'm not exactly sure, but it's something that's been done for a very long time. They did studies. They, there's some videos out there of some people experiencing shell shock in World War I. And so they're in a hospital in France and they videotaped them doing some, some fly fishing. And the first time that they do it, they show them kind of shaking and that thousand yard stare and all of that. And by the end of it, after a few weeks, now all of a sudden they can hold the rod properly. They can cast and that thousand yard stare is so slowly dissipating from them. There's something about the outdoors that is healing for everyone, not just veterans, but just like you said, that that positive experience with a rifle. Uh, if we look at World War II, the 30-06 is arguably one of the most popular hunting rounds ever in America. Super capable at everything at any practical distance. So that round was developed for the military for World War II. The reason it became so popular is because people took their service rifles home after World War II. Yep. That became the family hunting rifle. It's it's something that they were familiar with, that they were used to carrying. They carried it every single day. And so being able to get in the outdoors and escape and, you know, have that thing in your hands that is familiar to you, that was your lifeline, it just allows you to get back to that. Uh, the other part is also gives just you a bit nice. of a transition too, because you're yeah, it helps in you a with completely that. different environment. Yes. You know, here it is, you're back home, you're not over there anymore. But here's this little familiarity. It's no longer a complete shock to be back home. It's now here's that little bit to help with my transition. The other part is just getting out there. You know, I mean, I think the bigger part for me is just the camping, the camp experience, having multiple people. I, I enjoy small game because it's a yes. chance for us to connect a lot more. But it's nice to be in the woods with somebody who speaks your language, with somebody who you don't have to change what you're saying. You don't have to stop and explain yourself when you use an acronym. And then the military community, it doesn't matter what branch you're in. All of a sudden, it's it's interesting that it's just almost an automatic click. Every single one of our camps, you know, within the first day, everybody is best friends and it just helps. You know, you you finally are back to something that's familiar to you that's the biggest thing it's it's just one that people have been familiarized with it and you know that's that's just part of it i mean and hunting and the military has had just a strong bond uh you go all the way back midi you know the encyclopedia of military warfare it, it describes three pillars that they would try to put into their knights and it was horsemanship hunting and the use of arms yep that's the second pillar is to get them out hunting and using those skills you know, yeah. during the people who move 20... quietly through the 
through the woods know how to navigate and uh, know how to shoot are of particular use that's exactly why the civil revolutionary war they recruited heavily from our hunters and farmers because they've already know how to shoot they already know how to use that it's a matter of national security at that point actually during the civil war there was the south was marching on cincinnati and so the governor of ohio called for his, everybody to come and gather in cincinnati and get ready to defend the the city and a scout comes through from the confederates sees this gathering kind of hears what's going on there about everything and then goes back to the general and says hey they're they call them the squirrel hunters it's farm boys that have never had to shoot at the same squirrel twice no okay. confederates turned around yeah <laughs> you know it's just it's a matter of you know at that point it was a matter of national security like that's who you went and got and it was enough that it turned you know, it turned an army around and, and pushed them back further into Kentucky. You know, now we've got a voluntary force and it's just a little bit different. We, you know, we're not necessarily recruiting, but that's that's who's joining. We're, we still have right. a high percentage of people who hunt and who are used to firearms because they're comfortable with them. So that's that's still who's coming in. And then to be able to come back after, you know, again, we, we've been at war for we were at war for 20 years to come back and try to get back into something familiar. Here's something I did. Before I joined and, you know, I'm used to carrying a rifle around. It just helps meld that and ease that transition a little bit. Well, that is very awesome work. And I really appreciate what you've done, not only within the service, but now what you're doing afterwards. I think that's very laudable. And I really just wanted to say thank you for coming on the show. If people want to reach your part of the organization, need help getting in, need help with whatnot how should they get to you best thing to do instagram uh it's gonna be at the letters b-h-a underscore a-f-i that's probably the easiest way that's our national part of the organization every one of our states has their own accounts if you type in armed forces initiative into facebook you're going to get to us or just backcountryhunters.org slash armed forces initiative or if you just type in armed forces initiative into the google machine you're we're going to pull up we've got you will find us (laughs) you'll find us we've got liaisons again in 46 states if you contact any of any of those or just reach out to us my email is afi comms so afi c-o-m-m-s at backcountryhunters.org and if you get in touch with us we're going to be able to help you get that person who's in your area. We've got a really strong Washington club, which is one of the reasons that, you know, we're, we're getting them involved here. Really, I just want to leave a message for our veterans here. I don't care if you want to get involved with me. I don't care if you want to get involved with one of the other organizations. If you care about elk, get involved with Rocky Mountain. If, if you care about bear, go and get involved with the American Bear Association. I want you to be involved in conservation. I want you to use your voice and I want you to speak out. That's yeah. really what this is about for me is I, I don't care if you get involved with me or somebody else. I need you to be involved. We've got a lot of veteran hunting and fishing organizations out here that take people on trips. Let's transition that into getting people involved. And that's yep. really what, what I want to leave everybody with. We need their voices. I absolutely agree. Well, Justin, thank you very much for uh, coming on the show. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Ryan. If you like the idea of this show or you learned something and you want to show your support, you can go to Kofi.com. That's spelled K-O-F-I.com backslash hunter, farmer, artisan, and you can leave me a tip. I'm not looking to get rich or famous doing this podcast. I just want to get some good information out there. 
and your support helps pay for things like microphones and software licenses and such. As promised, here is that public comment from Justin. Hello, commissioners and staff. I am Justin Spruill, a resident of Thurston County, father, husband, hunter, angler, and an eight-year veteran of the U.S. Army. Following my time in the Army and after numerous years overseas, I chose to remain in the Evergreen State. I grew up originally in Texas. I was unaware of public lands, but after having my eyes open to the vast sporting opportunities available in this state, I knew that I could never leave. Hunting and fishing gave me the opportunity to step away from my own mind, relax, and heal. Now, I volunteer with Backcountry Hunters and Anglers Armed Forces Initiative. Our mission is to share public lands and waters with other veterans. I teach them how to use the opportunities here in Washington as an escape after 20 years at war, connect with the others who have been through the same things, and get involved with conservation. As mentioned in your social science briefing yesterday, Veterans Outdoor Adjunct Therapy has been shown to be effective in combating stressors and helping our veterans adjust to life again. We teach veterans how to get outside, explore the outdoors, and give back with a new mission bigger than themselves. With that being said, I support maximizing opportunities for our veterans that I serve, as long as it's backed by science-based management. These seasons give our veterans a healthy outlet and something to look forward to year to year and season to season. The countless lives that have been saved due to outdoor pursuits should mean something to this commission. The emails that I've received and mountaintop conversations that I've had letting me know that our camps and our hunts have pulled someone from a very dark place keep me going in this. Some of our veterans are fighting a game of inches, and I, for one, want to give them every advantage that I can. When you reduce or close seasons for reasons that are not backed by science, you take away one more tool that my team or a veteran has when using outdoors for adjunct therapy. A government agency telling my members that they should be nervous when they're now back home and trying to readjust and finding a healthy activity to enjoy and a new mission in conservation, in my mind, is unacceptable. I ask that you think about our active duty service members being moved here in the name of national security and our veterans who've chose to remain in this state when you make your decisions and when you choose your words. Thank you.